This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. For those of us that remain, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians once again. Galatians chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to work our way through verses 21 through 31. So Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. I thank you for your continued prayers for my daughter Emma. Uh, She had a bout with pneumonia about three weeks ago, but it's doing much better now. So as uh, Jody and I like to say, we are still in the fight, uh, still praying for God's hand to work, and we see it in small ways. So thank you for being a part of that and continuing to pray. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. I draw your attention as Paul is continuing his defense of the gospel. The gospel as Paul has presented it is this. Jesus is Lord, the Messiah who has died on the cross and risen from the dead for your sins. Believe on Him. You shall be saved. But teachers had arrived that were adding to that message. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and follow the law. Do the right works. Be circumcised. Then you shall be saved. This letter that we have been working our way through is Paul's defense of the gospel. That we are saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone, and no other way. The passage I'm about to read and that we're going to study this morning really serves as Paul's culmination of his theological argument. Chapter 5, he picks up on a lot of application of how to apply this. So let's listen this morning as, as we read and work our way through this final point in Paul's defense. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
May God add his blessing to the reading of the hearing of his word this morning. There's a great deal of debate about what club, what social club in this world is the most exclusive. Now by club I'm talking about like a, whether it be a golf club or a recreation club that you pay a dues to and become a member of. Some say that Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia is the most exclusive. They only have 300 members and it's by invitation only. In fact, it's often said that if you inquire about becoming a member, you will not be invited. You just don't ask. Nobody knows exactly how much it costs to become a member there. Forbes magazine says that the initiation fee varies anywhere from, drum roll, $250,000 to half a million dollars. That's your entry fee. Others say that's not the most exclusive club. Some say it is the Hurlingham Club in London. That's a social and hunting club. King Edward VII went pigeon shooting there, and its club provides its members with first-class social and sporting facilities. However, if you want to join, you do need to be related to royalty in some way, and you'll have to wait at least 15 years for a current member to die. And then after that, you'll have to wait another 15 years to even have voting privileges. But I don't think that's the most exclusive club. I would argue that maybe the most exclusive club in the world today only has five members. And the only way you can join this club is to be elected president of the United States. That's the only way. Now, it's safe to say that most of us will never be a part of one of those clubs. But if you do get invited to join Augusta, keep your pastor in mind. We wouldn't qualify. Those are our costs beyond our means. That's why I have glorious good news for you this morning, believer. You are part of something better than any of those clubs. You are a part of the family of God that has benefits now and benefits that go into eternity that are beyond description. And the good news is this. Your initiation fee into the family of God has already been paid in full by Jesus Christ. You're a part simply by faith. But that brings about the question that the Apostle Paul has been wrestling with. How can we know? How can we be sure that we belong to the family of God? How can you know for certain that you are a part of God's family? That is the question at the heart of this letter. Now Paul has been preaching boldly. To be a part of the family of God, you only have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. But the false teachers were saying, no, 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 that's not true. You place your faith in Jesus, then do the works of the Torah. Then you will know that you are a part of God's family. So Paul is writing this letter to God believers back to relying on the gospel and the gospel alone for their salvation. Now, the passage that we read just a moment ago, it's challenging to understand. So this morning I want to lay out our approach to it. We're going to walk through this passage to understand its meaning. And then I'm going to give three points of application. So let's understand the text and then apply it. 
So let's start with verse 21. Paul begins with a very pointed question. And it's a question that's geared to get those who are thinking, okay, I'm going to do these works to secure my salvation to make them think. He says, you who desire to be under the law, that is, believe in Jesus, but still do the works of the law. Do you not listen to the law? In other words, have you thought about what the law actually says? Because if you had really heard what the law is saying, you would not seek to be under it. Because they're thinking that the law is about do's and don'ts and ceremonies that make you a part of the family of God. That's not the point of the law. The law is meant to lead us to trust in the promises made by God that are fulfilled in Jesus. Because when you look at the law, you realize we can't keep the law. Now, to make this point, Paul then turns to a narrative recorded in Genesis 16, 17, and 21. It's the story of Sarah, Hagar, and their children. That's what he introduces in verse 22. Notice he says that it's written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, go back in time a bit, several thousand years. Abraham has been called by God to go to Israel. And as he is in this land, God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. Go out, Abraham, and look at the stars in the night sky. Your descendants are going to be more in number than those stars. Abraham, walk into the desert and, and pick up a handful of sand. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the grains of sand that are in the entire desert. And more than that, Abraham, I'm going to give them the land. It's yours. Trust me. There's where the problem came in. To have many descendants, you have to have the first descendant. Abraham and Sarah have no children. The years start to roll by. The pregnancy test is continually coming up negative. Sarah and Abraham are getting older. So they devise a plan. We need to help God out a little bit. I mean, I, I know God made the universe by speaking a word. God is powerful. But you know what? Every now and then, God needs a little help to accomplish his plans, doesn't he? <laughs> That's what they thought. So their plan was this. Abraham will have relations with, his, with Sarah's slave, Hagar. And if there's a child born to that union... That's going to be the descendant through which God will fulfill his promise. God, we got it all worked out. And that's what they do. Hagar conceives a son they named Ishmael. But that wasn't the way God intended things to be. And 14 years later, Sarah is in her 90s. And Abraham is, as Sarah said, as good as dead. And guess what? The test comes up positive. Sarah is pregnant by the hand of God, working in ways that were impossible. God has fulfilled His Word. 
And that's why Abraham mentions in verse 22, there were two sons. One by the slave woman Hagar, one by the free woman Sarah. The son born of Hagar was born according to the flesh. That is human works, human plans, human effort. While the son of Sarah, the free woman, was born through promise. Now, keep in mind that what's happening here is this. The descendants of Isaac, that were, who was born to Sarah, are the Jews, the people of promise. The Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, were understood to be from the line of Hagar. Now, here's the question. Why would Abraham even bring this up here? I mean, this comes out of left field. What in the world is going on? Well, it's believed by scholars that the teachers that had come into Galatia were using the story of Sarah and Hagar to bolster their case. Their premise was this. The promised people, the family of God, comes through Isaac, who is the promised child. What did God tell Abraham to do to Isaac? To have him circumcised. Therefore, if you are a part of the people of God, you will follow what God instructed Abraham to do, have your children circumcised, follow the law, then you know. Otherwise, you're outside the family of God and you're from Hagar. That was their teaching. So now here comes Paul. He turns this on its head. He says, to do that, you miss the entire point. That's why in verse 24 he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, let's stop there for a moment. A word on biblical interpretation. This is a planned rabbit trail, by the way. An allegory is a story where the people and the events of the story stand for or represent something else. Probably the most famous allegory in literature is that of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Written in the 1600s, it tells the story of Christian. Now, quiz. Who do you think Christian represents? Christians. You're right. And so Christian starts this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along his way, he meets fellow travelers, faithful and hopeful. Along the way, they encounter the slough of despond into which Christian sinks under the weight of his sins and his sense of guilt for them. Everything in the pilgrim's progress represents, stands for something in the Christian life. It's an allegory. So Paul interprets the story of Sarah and Hagar as an allegory. This is where we have to be careful. It is very tempting to come to passages of Scripture that we have difficulty understanding and to read them as an allegory. Now, we can do that here because Paul says to. But if we start applying that approach to other portions of Scripture, it can lead us into some serious theological mistakes and some dangerous applications. For example... In the book of 2 Kings chapter 4, it tells us the story of Elisha who comes and he meets a widower who has children that have been sold into slavery and she wants to get them back. He asks her, what do you have in the house? She says, I got a little bit of Crisco, just a little bit of oil. And that's it. So he says, I want you to go and borrow all the empty containers you can have from your neighbors and bring them back. So she goes to her neighbors and gets all the Tupperware they can spare. 
brings it back, and all these jars, all these containers are in the house. And so Elisha says, start pouring the oil. Guess what happens? The oil doesn't stop. It keeps coming and coming until every empty container is full, and then it stops. Now, we don't know what to do with that. So sometimes, well-meaning preachers have said this. Church, they say, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And those containers represent us. And when we come empty before God, He'll fill us up. That'll preach, won't it? But that's not what that passage is about. Because you run into a serious problem. You know, at the end of that passage, Elisha tells the widow, sell the oil. Now, if the oil represents the Holy Spirit, and I'm being told to sell the Holy Spirit, we have what they call a problem. That's what happens when we read Scripture in the way it's not intended to be read. So my rule of thumb is this. Interpret the Scripture based upon its genre, upon its, its liter literary form, unless... The scripture clearly says this is an allegory. This represents this, which is exactly what it does here. So Paul tells us that Sarah and Hagar represent something beyond themselves. So what we have is this situation. We have Sarah on one side and Hagar on the other. Sarah, the free woman, the wife of Abraham, Hagar, the servant, and what he begins to point out then in verses 24 and 25 and 26 is this. Sarah represents freedom. Hagar's the slave. Being oppressed, not free. Sarah, he says, represents the covenant of God's grace. Verse 24, it's interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Sarah represents grace, promise, God doing a work to accomplish his plan. On the other hand, Hagar represents the covenant of works, that of the law. That's what he says in verse 24. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. He goes on, Sarah represents Mount Zion. The dwelling place of God. Not earthly Jerusalem, but heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells. Hagar represents Mount Sinai. Verse 25. What did God give on Mount Sinai? The law. So he's saying that Hagar represents going outside of God's plan, trying to accomplish your righteousness, your salvation apart from God. As I said a moment ago, Sarah represents, according to verses 25 and 26, the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal city of God. Hagar represents earthly Jerusalem. I would remind you that when Paul wrote this, earthly Jerusalem not only represented the law, it was under the thumb of Roman oppression. So all this is saying Sarah represents the promise of God that gives freedom. Hagar represents our own works that end up enslaving us. And then you get to verse 26. But Jerusalem above is free. That's God's dwelling place. She is our mother. What? Jerusalem's our mother? What's that getting at? I'm glad you asked. We're going to go old school on this. This will not be on the screens. Open your Bibles to Psalm 87. Because in that statement... The Apostle Paul is referring to a prophecy, a promise that God made in Psalm 87. Psalm 87. So to understand that statement, Jerusalem is our mother, we've got to understand the prophecy, the promise, I should say, that points toward that. 
So Psalm 87. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. A psalm. Verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. That would be Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Now verse 4. Among those who know me. Now, keep in mind, to know God is to be saved. To know God is to be a part of God's family. Not knowing God means you are not saved. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Now, here's a clue. Babylon and Rahab, certainly Babylon, were enemies of God's people. And it also tells us that this psalm was written when Jerusalem had been decimated and was controlled by Babylon. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. All of those are the enemies of God's people. But they know God. And look what he says next. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be say, this one and that one were born in her. Who's this one and that one? The enemies of God, those that were excluded, the Gentiles. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. The peoples in Hebrew is shorthand for all the Gentiles. This one is born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. What Psalm 87 is saying is there will come a time when the enemies, the outcasts, the Gentiles, those who do not know God will be brought into the family of God and they will say the city of God, God himself has birthed us. And guess what? Paul is saying in Galatians 4.26 that time has come in Jesus. He has brought about the fulfillment of what God said so that you and I can say Jerusalem is our mother. God has redeemed us because being a part of the family of God is not about lineage, position, or power. It's about faith and trust in the promises of God. And that's where Abraham and Sarah made their mistake. They did not trust God. They tried to make salvation happen in their own power by their efforts. And guess what? It did not work. Rather than trusting God with what we can do to be saved, trust God. Trust His promise. Because trusting His promise for salvation by faith results in joy. Because notice where he moves in verse 27 now. For it is written, and James read this earlier, Isaiah 54 verse 1. Notice the verbs, rejoice, break forth, cry aloud. In other words, celebrate. Who is celebrating? The barren one who does not bear. Now keep in mind, in that day and culture, to be barren as a wife was a symbol or, a, or meant, usually in their understanding, you'd been cursed by God. But now God's saying, that's being reversed. This is the great reversal. Cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Joy is emphasized because God is bringing about something that we could not bring about. Those who do not rely on God but trust their works, those who learn to walk by faith and not by sight, will experience the joy of God because our God is the God of the great reversal. That which is dead comes to life. That which is fallow becomes fruitful. That which is orphaned becomes family. Why? Because of the promises of God. Verse 28 
Now you brothers are like Isaac, the children of promise. So he says the whole point is not that Isaac was circumcised. The whole point is that God is faithful to his promise. Trust him. If you go the route of following the law, you're going the route of Sarah and Abraham when they turn to Hagar. So what do we do with this? Okay, Great study, I think, of the scripture. But what do we do? I want to give you three takeaways from this. First is this. Follow Jesus out of love and not fear. Verses 22 through 26 highlight the difference between freedom and slavery. In fact, starting in chapter 5, Paul's going to begin emphasizing freedom. You understand that the gospel gives us freedom. To live with the burden of perfection is to live with a burden that we cannot bear. To live with the weight of expectations that we have to do everything right puts upon us a weight that will cause us to collapse because we can't attain it. We cannot attain perfection. And if we're relying on that, we will be of most all people miserable. I'm convinced that's why many believers show no joy and carry underneath them an anger. It's because they feel like they've got to live up. They've got to be good enough. They've got to check all the right boxes, say all the right things in order to, to be sure they're saved. Instead of celebrating the joy of God's promise. You see, if we set out on the path of perfection, we're a lot like the bus driver by the name of Lily Baltrip. She was a great bus driver. She drove uh, um, in Houston, of all places. I've never been to Houston, but I understand it's a pretty big place. She had driven for over a decade with no accident, no incident, no problems whatsoever. In fact, her record was so good that the school board decided to give her a safe driving award. In fact, they decided that on the night that she was going to be presented with this honor, that it would be neat for her to pick up the members of the school board in her bus and drive them to the meeting. So they arranged. They had a meeting place. She pulls up in her bus, opens the door. The, the members of the Houston School District get in, and they're driving to the, to the awards ceremony. When? She took a turn a little too sharply. And on her way to receive her award for safe driving, she flipped the bus. Now, thankfully, no one was injured. Minor injuries, hospital, minor treatment. But do you still get a safe driving award for that? There's the problem, isn't it? How much error do we tolerate? For standards of perfection, none. That's why the good news of the gospel is that God loves us. He has redeemed us. He has made us righteous. So that by relying on the Spirit, we will seek Him and live for Him because of what He has done. And if you are trying to be righteous by works, you will never know peace or joy because you'll never know what it is to be good enough. That's why John gives us the promise that the love of God, it kicks out any fear. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, this whole context in 1 John 4 is dealing with judgment, standing before the presence of God. He says, guess what? Fear has to do with punishment. I've not lived up to the standard. I've failed. I have not been the perfect Christian. Guess what? 
That fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Fear is a slave master that will oppress you and your heart will never be at rest because you'll always be wondering, have I messed up too much? Have I blown it once and for all? Hear the good news of the gospel. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you have joy now because your future is secure. Second thing I would ask you to take away from this passage is live in hope and not pessimism. Verses 27 and 28, as I mentioned earlier, is about a great reversal. And that's why we as all people should not be pessimistic. You've often heard the definition of a pessimist or the difference between a pessimist and an optimist is that they look at a glass that's half filled with water. They say the optimist looks at it and says, oh, the glass is half full. Where we hear the pessimist looks at it and says, well, the glass is half empty. I don't think that's accurate. Yeah, the optimist will say it's half full. But you know what the pessimist really says? It doesn't matter because it's going to get spilled anyway. That's the pessimist. The term Christian and pessimist should never be used in the same sentence. Now, I'm not preaching a Pollyannish, everything is great attitude. We, we know there are hard times in life. Can I get a witness? But what the believer knows is this. The trials and troubles of this world are not a period at the end of the sentence. They're a comma. It is God who will dot the sentence of our lives with the period or the exclamation point according to His will. It is the view that God will have the last word. Therefore, I don't need to be afraid. You see, there is much in this world that causes us angst over the future. You and I are constantly bombarded with messages about how bad things are and how we are doomed if, and you can fill in the blank, doesn't happen. And that's why this morning I want to give you a word of caution. There are those in this world who will, in the name of Jesus, preach fear and baptize their agenda in order to manipulate the church because they see the church not as the people of God, but as a voting block to be manipulated. When we face such attempts and you begin fear rising in your heart as you look at the news, listen to the news, and you start to feel this sense of dread and fear, I want you to ask yourself four questions. One, has God abdicated His throne? Has God taken a break? Second, ask yourself this. Has Jesus let go of me? He said He never would, so has He? Ask yourself this, is the tomb still empty? Because if he conquered death, what do I have to worry about? And then finally ask yourself, am I trusting God or man? If I am trusting God, then why am I afraid? If I am trusting man, why? Look to the Lord. Don't live in fear. And to do this, this third truth, hold on to the truth and not lies. Verse 29, he goes back to the story of Hagar and, and Isaac. And he looks back to Jewish tradition that said Hagar's son Ishmael, 
who was 14 years older than Isaac, began to, to make life hard for Isaac. And he says, that's what's happening now. Those who are preaching the law are making life hard for you. And they do it for the same reason that Ishmael may have persecuted Isaac, out of fear. Their fear of losing their status, they're fearful of losing control, so they make others suffer. So he says, that's where you've got to draw a line. Verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son. That's what the scripture says. Now keep in mind what he's saying here. He is saying draw a line to safeguard the gospel. If people arrive preaching a gospel other than salvation by grace through faith, leave them. Don't listen to them. They don't need to be teaching. They don't need to be in your midst. But what he is saying to apply to the church also applies to us as individuals because our minds often begin to turn this loop, these lies that circulate in our thinking. You are worthless. You're a failure. You are unloved and unlovable. Confront those lies with the truth. You are loved by God. You are accepted by God through His promise and through faith. And that's why Paul ends in verse 31. We're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That is our identity. You are a child of God because of God's promise. Many years ago, a seminary professor and his wife were vacationing in the Gatlinburg area. One morning they went to eat breakfast at this little restaurant looking forward to enjoying just a quiet meal with themselves. And while they were waiting, they noticed a very distinguished looking white-haired man moving from table to table visiting with each of the guests. The professor leaned over and whispered to his wife, I sure hope he doesn't come over here. But sure enough, the man made his way to the table and asked in a very friendly voice, Where are you folks from? Oklahoma, they answered. Well, it's great to have you here in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? Well, I teach at a seminary. The distinguished gentleman said, Oh, so you teach preachers how to preach, do you? Well, I've got a really great story for you. And with that, the gentleman pulls up a chair and sits down at their table. Professor groaned and he thought to himself, great, just what I need, another preacher story. Well, their unwanted guest started out by saying, see that mountain over there? And he pointed out the restaurant window and he said, not far from the base of that mountain, there was a boy born to an unwed mother. He had a hard time growing up because every place that he went, he was always asked the same question. Hey, boy, who's your daddy? Who's your father? Whether he was at school, in the grocery store, the drug store, people always whispered and asked the same question. Who's, who's his father? Boy, who's your dad? This boy was so frustrated and scared and fearful that he would hide at recess at school. And lunchtime, he would find a place to eat where he wasn't around the other students. He began avoiding going into stores because the question and the gossip hurt him so bad. But when that boy was about 12 years old, he was going to church. He would sneak in at the, after the service had started and get on the back row. And then when the preacher ended, he would sneak out quickly so he wouldn't have to talk to anybody. But there was a new preacher at church. This preacher was good. 
And one time, this preacher prayed the benediction so quickly that this little boy wasn't able to get out before they were dismissed. The preacher had made his way to the back door as he was praying, and as they were coming through, the preacher put his hand on the shoulder of the little boy, and he said, Son, who's your daddy? The whole church got deathly quiet. The boy could feel every eye on the place staring at him, ears listening to see how he would answer. The new preacher sensed the tenseness of the situation around him. And using discernment that only the Holy Spirit could give, he looked at that little boy and he said, Wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance now. You're a child of God. And with that, he patted the boy on his shoulder and he said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. And with that, the little boy smiled for the first time in a long time. And he walked out the door a changed person. When everybody asked him from that point on, who's your daddy? He would tell them, I'm a child of God. The white-haired, distinguished gentleman got up from the table and he said, isn't that a great story? And the professor responded, yeah, man, that, that was really great. And as the gentleman turned to leave, he said, you know, if that new preacher hadn't told me that I was one of God's children, I'd probably have never amounted to anything. And then he walked away out of the restaurant. The professor and his wife were stunned. He called a waitress over and asked her, Do you know who that man was that just left our table? The waitress grinned and said, Of course, everybody knows him. That's Ben Hooper, former governor of the state of Tennessee. Maybe today you need to be reminded you're a child of God. When all those lies come in, you're worthless, you're failed, you're a child of God. And there may be someone in your life today that needs to be reminded, by faith, they're a child of God. Rest in His promise, my brothers and sisters. Rest in His promise. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you that it's not by our works we're saved because we couldn't do it. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your promise that whoever believes will be saved. So, Lord, you've, you alone know the heart of every person in here today. There are some that struggle with identity. They wonder if they're worth anything. Does anybody love them? And Father, I pray right now for that person that your love would overwhelm them. And that they would know that by your grace they are accepted and loved and forgiven. Father, let that radiate out of our mouths, out of our lives. And grant us the joy of knowing that you are the God of the great reversal. Father, thank you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.